What's going on, everybody, and welcome to the first and foremost podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Covington. I'm Quentin Douglas. And we're back at it again with you with episode nine. Quentin, how you doing, man? Pretty good, my guy. How you doing, bro? I'm doing good, man. I got one exam left, and then I'll be done with undergrad. Man, I finished Friday, and there was no better feeling than hitting submit on that last assignment. Man, I'm a, I might cry. I'm t- I gotta say this again, I might cry. Man, for real. Got to celebrate. <laughs> got to. But as y'all know, you know, we usually release an episode on Sunday, but I had some storm some storm issues, and it had my power out, and Queen went feeling well yesterday, so we are bringing you episode nine today, right now, so y'all should get there later tonight. But, you know, with that being said, Quinn, let's go ahead and get started, man. Uh, you know, That's Sunday, good. Sunday as usual is is the, the premiere of the last dance, episodes five and six were premiered Sunday. Uh, Quinn, what are your thoughts on episodes five and six? Yeah, man. Uh, once again, I really enjoyed the uh, episode Sunday. Uh, I can't, can't wait till next Sunday. But, uh, you know, my biggest takeaways were – you know, we really got an inside look once again at just MJ's competitive spirit and, you know, just how it's been so unmatched by many, you know, throughout the NBA's history, other than maybe, you know, guys like Kobe Bryant. But, uh, man, just seeing the way he golfed, I think they said at one point he owed people like $1.2 million in debt from gambling golf. That was pretty crazy. Uh, but, you know, really also seeing the Dream Team and how they, they stamped the, the NBA's global presence around the world and just seeing how they dominated. Uh, that Tony Kukoc story was new for me. I never knew uh, that they, you know, targeted him like that in that game and bullied him a little bit. Uh, and I think another thing that the, these episodes really brought light to was Charles Barkley, you know, today – you know, he's known for talking all this trash on TNT. You know, he always has something controversial to say. But, you know, after seeing those episodes, I think he's honestly one of the most disrespected all-time greats uh, in the NBA. Like, just seeing how truly dominant he was and just, like, the fact that if a few other things had went the Suns' way, like, they could have possibly knocked off the Bulls. So, that's what I got from those episodes, bro. What what did you see? Man, for me, uh, you know, the Kobe Bryant cameo, there was I was I was excited to see that. You know, we all know what the relationship well, we can now we know what the relationship with Kobe and Jordan was like. Uh Jordan said that they were, Kobe was his little brother, so we got to see a little bit of that. And, you know, those other vet, veterans in the Eastern locker room, they were talking about the little Laker boy and how, you know, how aggressive he was, how he didn't want to let the game come to him and that perfectly perfectly describes Kobe. I think another thing that stood out to me was uh uh his his disdain for being compared to Clyde Drexler who's a Hall of Famer in his own right. Uh you know, you know you got you're a competitor when another Hall of Famer is compared to you and you feel like it's an insult. That's how you know that's some that's one of the marks of greatness, being insulted by somebody else being compared to you. So I love to see, you know, the competitive edge of MJ in, in episode six, you know, I love episode six especially. Uh, you know, and it did shed light on, uh, I guess you could say, his gambling problem. Uh, I don't feel like it's a problem as long as you're not losing, you know what I'm saying, family family things, your people are in danger. As long as that's not a problem, then I don't feel like it, sh- it should have even been discussed. But I think one thing that stood out to me was, you know, 
the the Team USA story. I knew about the story, but I didn't really know. I figured it was just because, you know, they were going to be new teammates, so they were going to test them out. But no, it was because of Jerry Krause. They knew Jerry Krause liked them, so they like, you know what, we're going to torch them. <laughs> and that kind of it's like a common thing. If Jerry Krause likes it and it's on the opposing team, then they're going to go at him. Just like the 93 finals, uh, he's, Jordan said, Jerry Cross knew the damn – he liked Dan Marley. He thought he was a great defender. So he's like, you know what, I'm going to go at him every single time because Jerry Cross thinks he's a great defender. You know, you don't really don't get guys as competitors just like MJ no more. And it's, it's just been a sight to see. You know, I've always wanted to get an inside look at his competitive streak. And as we can see, MJ is like – is a psychopathic bully on the court. That's exactly what he is. So, you know, like I said, I'm excited to see episode seven and eight. I read something that was like episode seven and will probably be one of the best episodes we'll see. So – you know, I'm excited to see that. Yeah, for sure, bro. I really think the best is yet to come in this series. Oh, yeah. But you know what? We're, while we're still on the topic of the last dance, you know, let's backtrack a little bit to episode four. Uh, episode four focused on Phil Jackson, talked a lot about him. And, you know, you you put in the question, you know, who's the better coach uh, between Phil Jackson and Greg Popovich? So, Quinn, tell me who you think is the best coach in NBA history and why. Yeah, man. So watching the episode, you know, it really got me to thinking, like, who's really the greatest NBA coach in history? Like, it was something I really had never thought about before that. Uh, but, you know, after doing some digging and some research, uh, you know, I've always – I don't know if I've ever publicly said it, but I've always considered Phil Jackson to be the luckiest NBA head coach of all time. Like, he just walked in the two situations where he inherited Scottie Pippen and Jordan on one hand, and then the next, he got Shaq and Kobe. But, you know, looking at those teams before, you know, he coached the – he was head coach of the Bulls. When he was assistant coach, I mean, they were already getting to the Eastern Conference Finals. Their only, you know, obstacle was the Pistons. Uh, and even Shaq and Kobe – that Lakers team before Phil got there, Dale Harris was coaching them, and they were dominating in the West. And I think I saw, like, from 94 to 99, they had, like, nearly 250 wins. So, like, literally all he had to do was come in, you know, bring his philosophy and, you know, elevate them to a championship level. But, like, looking at his situations is almost similar to, like, what Steve Kerr inherited with the Warriors. Like, Mark Jackson built that culture and got those guys to the point where they, you know, went through their struggles, and then they became a perennial playoff team. Uh, but my greatest coach of all time, in my opinion, I think is Coach Pop. I mean, looking at the resume, five rings. He has a three-time three -time coach of the year, which is only matched by, I think, like two other coaches. I think it was Pat Riley and uh, Red Auerbach, who used to coach the Celtics during the Bill Russell days. Uh, but, you know, before he took over for the Spurs, they were like 3-15, and 15, I think, with Bob Hill. And, you know, David Robinson was injured, you know, back and foot injuries. But their leading scorer at the time was a 37-year-old Dominique Wilkins. Like, seriously? So then, you know, he came in, he got Duncan, uh, you know, drafted Parker, Ginobili, you know, all those international guys. Uh, but, you know, not only looking at the fact that he won, but also, you know, he did it his way 
He had his own homegrown dynasty. They, you know, were consistently at the top of the NBA for a span of like 20 years. And then just looking at the impact that, you know, he had on the game, like the Spurs are now viewed as like, you know, that golden standard for NBA organizations and like how they should be run. And then, you know, like I mentioned with the foreign players, before the Spurs, you know, foreign guys were respected. But, you know, after their run, like, people started putting a lot more stock into, you know, scouting these international players. And then his system he created, you know, that team-first mentality of, you know, buying in, playing defense, ball movement on offense, you know, that proved to be a system that was successful for 20 years even when Tim Duncan was 40, you know, they were still winning championships. So just looking at, you know, not only his resume, but the way he transformed that team and did it his way, that's what makes Greg Popovich, in my opinion, the greatest coach of all time in the NBA. For me, I have a different opinion. Uh, I think Phil is the greatest coach ever. And then the amount of championships speaks for itself and the, the level of sustained success speaks for itself. Uh, of course, he ran into having Michael Jordan, you know, Scottie Pippen, but but Doug Collins wasn't able to take them over the top. It's just that simple. And, you know, with the Lakers, Dale Harris wasn't able to get that group over the top. And Phil Jackson was. I mean, if you inherit a great team, it ain't, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, he has 11 championships and 13 championship appearances. He won six with Chicago, five with L.A. He had three three-peats. Think about that. Three of them. He also had the two most dominant duos in NBA history, but go off then. But listen, within both of those duos, there was one dominant player that wasn't able to get it done by himself, and so they had to create a system that was going to be able to utilize his talents as well as level up the rest of the team. And so if you look at Phil Jackson's record, he won 70% of his games, and when he got to the playoffs, it remained exactly the same, about 68 69%. So he didn't drop off. He never missed the playoffs as a head coach. Uh, he's 335 games over 500, bro. 11, think, think about that. 335 games over 500. In the NBA, 82 games, come on, man. I'm not impressed. 11, 11 rings speaks for itself. Please don't bring rings argument into this. It's not all about rings. Listen, I clearly just listed all, coaches, all the factors that go into this. Coaches coach and players play to win championships. Of course, championships aren't the only criteria, but that should be the majority of the criteria. Not only is he winning championships. I've got five. Phil got twice as five. many. Five is hard enough. Phil, give, Phil Pop, M, give Pop, MJ, and Pippen and Kobe and Shaq. I bet you they win 20 rings. Listen, he, he didn't have them. We can't give him because he didn't have them. You can't that you can't take points away from Phil for having great players. It's just like you can't take away Steve Kerr's coaching legacy. I mean, okay, yeah, for Mark Jackson formulated their team, drafted their team, but he didn't take them over the top. And I mean, unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to see really whether he could take them over the top. But you can't take away from Steve Kerr's legacy because he inherited the team. He's created did a great. Did you not just say players are the ones playing the game? Yeah, Steve Kerr and I have three of the greatest shooters of all time. Of course. I mean, you're supposed to win with three of the greatest shooters of all time. But before then, 
with Clay and Steph and Draymond, they they weren't able to get over the top. Steve, Steve Kerr Clay. even admitted it was times he wasn't even coaching the team. Well, listen, players were listen, coaching. When you have great players, there's times when you don't have to coach your team, but when you do need to coach, Phil Jackson has obviously been able to do that. Well, okay. So he was able to win. What else did he do? What was his impact on the NBA? The triangle offense wasn't his. That was Ted. That was uh, what's his name? Ah, Tex Winters. Tex Winters. Yeah. So, so Listen, what did what did Phil do? He implemented. He implemented the triangle. He won eleven championships. That's enough mark on the game itself. That wasn't his system, though. I mean, Pop created. The, I mean, Pop created the international buzz. Okay. I mean, this this cool. But at the end of the day, coaches coach to win championships. And that's what he did, win championships. He coached for 20 years, went to the championship 13 times, and won 11 of them, bro. It don't get no better than that. Also, the players he had don't get no better than that. Oh, that's true. That's true. But, like, again, I said, you can't take away from his legacy because he inherited great players. I'm not taking away. I'm just – I've compared him to someone that did just as much with Are less. Are pop? Are we sure Pop would have been able to do that? We don't know that. Phil Jackson has a, a certain a certain aura about himself. They call him the Zen master for a reason, bro. When Phil now, came you, in and talked to, when Phil came you, in and talked to Michael, Michael Jordan in episode four, he told him this wasn't going to be the way. He was able to convince Michael Jordan, who by that time was a bona fide, was a bona fide superstar at that time. He told him that this way, the way he was, the way he was playing right now, was not going to lead to championships. He was able to get that man to change his ways in order to be a, to be a championship, to win, be a championship team. That's not that's not easy. We you've seen Michael Jordan mentality over these last few episodes. Do you not know how hard that might doing it with Michael Jordan is easier than with Tim Duncan and Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili, and a bunch of other just random pieces. I, I I like Pop. He's a great coach. I think he's the second greatest coach of all time. His impact on the game will forever, you know, forever be indebted. Bro. But 11 championships and 13 appearances, it don't get no better than that. At the end of the day, it's all about All right, winning. so by your, by your standard, Bill Russell to go to. This is not a GOAT conversation. This is about coaches. Who's the greatest coach, not the greatest player. Okay, GOAT coach, GOAT player. By your standard, Bill Russell is the GOAT, right? It's no, all it's about more- winning. No, it's more criteria. I, I explained to you earlier. You ain't named no criteria. other criteria other than winning. What else has he done? Bro, his impact. Listen, dude, his impact on the game is going to forever be here. Think about it. Everybody, think about it. He tried to – everybody can't run it. Why do you think nobody else has been able to replicate the, All right, the look, success of the fight? Look, look, look. When you think about the Bulls 3 P, who do you think of, MJ and Pippen or Phil Jackson? I think of all of those guys. Who do you think of first? I obviously I think of Michael Jordan like everyone else does. Okay, when you think of the when you think of the Lakers three P and they two championships after the three P, who you think of first? Kobe or Phil Jackson? I think of Kobe and Powell and Phil Jackson. They're all okay, intertwined. But he was, I, 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 I'm he not separating them. Hold I'm up, let me make my them. point. Let me make my point. When you think of the Spurs five championships, who do you think of first, Greg Popovich or Tim Duncan? I think of Greg and Pop. I think of Pop and Tim together. Thank you. No, oh no, you said Pop first. You just made my point. I'm not. I'm not placing the order of importance on the guys. They're all equally important to the to the piece of the to the pieces of the puzzle. 
Why do you think nobody else has been able to replicate the triangle? Because everybody can't teach it like Phil Jackson teaches. This man Pop didn't a, need the triangle. He made his own. This man, this man, Pop didn't need this the man, triangle. This man perfected a, a whole system that no one else has been able to replicate. Pop didn't need the triangle. He did it his own way. Hey, I, I mean, that's fine. But the triangle has yielded far more, far more success. With Think far better this. players. That's true. It's true. Right, the teams, win, teams win championships, not individuals. All right, Teams and organizations win championships. And think about that. Phil did that with Jerry Cross and Jerry and the owner making stupid decisions, trying to trade Scotty, doing all this stupid stuff. And he still was able to win five, six championships with the Bulls. I mean, but ultimately the, st- the team was still intact, though. Barely. <laughs> Don't matter. They was intact, Jimmy. Take we the see, L, we bro. See, we see. No, no. Take the L, Jimmy. Give me 11 out of 13 over five or six. Forget the impact on the game. Give me my 11 championships out of my 13 defenses. Forget the everlasting impact. Yeah, as long as – You don't care about everlasting – okay, bro. I'm done. No, I'm no. done. I'm done. No. Just give me I'm my done. rings. That's all it's I'm about. Done. I don't care about impact. I'm done. Just give me my rings. I'm done. It's all about rings, bro. Debating with you is like debating with a rock. It's not. It's not. <laughs> It's really not. It's all about rings, bro. What don't you understand about it? Okay. I hear you, bro. Players coach to win championships and players play to win championships. All right, bro. I heard you. Man. But you know what I'm saying? Let's let's segue to another topic. You know, this week is last week was college football U position week. And uh for those who don't understand what I'm explaining, so you know, people will say, you know, LSU is DBU. Or this school, or Georgia's running back. You. That's what we're talking about right here. So, which college is you know the greatest for to, the greatest in producing talent for that position? So today we're going to talk about wide receivers, running backs, and defensive backs. But first, we're starting off with defensive backs. So Quinn, who is your DBU? Man, oh man, I've been waiting to have this debate. Easily, DBU is the Ohio State University. Come on, bro. I mean, let me just let me just pre- present you with a few facts here. So, Ohio State has had since you only want to go back to two thousand nine. Let's put that little asterisk on here first, because you know historically we would have washed everybody. But quantity over going, quality. I mean, okay. Quality over quantity. You talking about NFL quality. DBU means defensive back university. Anyway, let me make my point. We've had 19 DBs selected since 2009. Same amount of time we've had nine first-round picks and three top ten picks. That's That's compared to LSU, who's only had 16. And five first-round picks. We nearly doubled their first-round picks in the same amount of time, but they're supposed to be DBU. Also, I'll go 2020 draft. We had two corners, first round. LSU, zero. Let me give you a few more facts, because you can't argue with facts. Every starting cornerback at Ohio State since 2014 has been selected in the NFL draft. Then... Looking at six of the last seven years, a corner from Ohio State has went in the first round of the NFL draft. 
that can't be ignored. And in my opinion, that's why Ohio State is the undisputed DBU. I appreciate your points, and you made some some valid, extremely valid points. But I'm going to say you're wrong, and I'm going with LSU. Actually, LSU has had 17 defensive backs drafted since 2009. And you mentioned five first-round picks. But I'm not – for my criteria, I'm not going off of quantity alone. I'm also including quality of those draft picks. And I'm also including their success in the NFL. Of course, Ohio State is a is a is a is a factory in terms of producing defensive backs, but we they are factory elite. at every position. Every but they aren't elite level. But they aren't elite level, and that's where, elite that's on what level in the NFL? Yes, they they don't produce elite NFL talent in terms of defensive backs. I didn't know Ohio State was coaching players once they were in the NFL. But still, okay, you get coached while you're there, right? You yes. get some coaching while you're in, in college. college. You some, in college, yeah. And you also get coaching while you're in NFL, right? We ain't got nothing to do with that. No, no, bro. We talk quality matters, bro. You can produce all the draft picks you want, but if they don't pan out, then, you know, people talk about Alabama producing all these prospects all the time. A lot of those guys don't pan out. And they talk negatively about Alabama. They don't talk negatively about the team that they went to. So I'm going to keep the same energy here. All right, bro. I'm listening. With those, with those 17 DBs drafted, they have 11 Pro Bowl selections and four All-Pro selections. Ohio State, those 19 guys only had four, five Pro Bowls and no All-Pro selections. We're talking, about, we're talking about quality over quantity here. You can give me as many people as you want, but if they're not producing, then it don't matter. Don't say they're not producing now. They're not just scrubs in the NFL. Bro, you got 19 guys drafting only five Pro Bowls. Whoa, 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 whoa. LSU has had way more DBs be bust in the NFL than Ohio State. Don't even get me started. Nate, okay. Nate, give me five elite Ohio State defensive backs right now that's in the NFL. Once again, it's not about being elite in the NFL. Why is that the first point you keep going to? Bro, because quality over quantity. If you're not producing in the league, then how can so you So what be, about quality of college? All right, we have four All-American DBs. How many LSU have? Consensus All-Americans. How many they have? Patrick Peterson was one. Okay. Tyra Matthews. Okay. Morris Claiborne. Oh, my goodness, Morris Claiborne. You want to talk about elite in the NFL? Of course. Boy, he was trash. Man. Oh, definitely. Definitely. As a Cowboy fan, I, I regret that pick to this day. But that's neither here nor there. I didn't bring up uh, Jamal Adams or Tredavious White or Eric Reed, for that matter, who was, who was elite in college. When he got to the league, he had one great year with San Francisco, but he fell off after that. But, bro, I like quality over quantity. You produce all the prospects you want, but if they don't make an impact when they get to their level, then I don't, I don't care about it. Bro, DBU is about how many players you do put in the NFL. Is that not the point of going to college? Of course that's the point of going to college. But also, I want to be elite at the next level. I want to be able to make an impact early and be elite. Being, not elite at the, being elite at the next level ain't got nothing to do with the college you came from. And you want to know why I believe they don't become – they're not used to facing that high level of competition in the Big Ten. Think about how many great Big Ten quarterbacks have you seen? Bro, that don't matter at all. Yeah, dude, you can be elite when you place when you face an inferior competition, but when you come into a higher level competition, then you suck. All right, all right, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Higher competition, we suck. 
What about we won the NCAA championship 2015? We suck. No, I'm saying, okay. We've no, been to you, the college football playoff every year. Every you year. My, you missed my entire point, bro. No, I did. Yes, you did. I'm talking about interconference competition. I'm not saying going to the college football playoff. Obviously, we know Ohio State is elite, bro. They they run in the Big Ten, but I'm saying the competition within the Big Ten is not all has not always been elite. So therefore, with cornerbacks, you're not facing top tier receivers every weekend and week out. And when you get to the league and face top tier receivers, then you're struggling. LSU they don't have that problem a lot of times. And of course, you got some outliers like Morris Claiborne. That he didn't pan out for reasons, you know, injuries and other reasons. But bro, Jamal Adams, Tre'Davious White, Patrick Peterson, Tyra Matthew. You got Grant Dilpit that's coming up. Greedy Williams, he's going to prove himself. Dante Jackson was good as a rookie. I don't, care, bro, I don't care what round you get drafted in, bro. Are you good when you come? Are you making an immediate impact? Once you, again, can you, sound, you sound like an NFL general manager right now. That's what you sound people, like. Players can follow the draft, but that's not, that's not always indicative of the, where they should have been drafted. Grant Dilpit, there's no way in. There's no way on God green that Grant Delpit should have been a second-round pick. You know Last he year. wasn't that good this year. He shouldn't have been the All-American. He started Stop the year. It. Injuries injured, hampered him Started year the long. year. This is a year-long. No, injuries have, have injuries happen. Injuries hamper him all year long. Of course, shouldn't they're going to affect his performance. But when Lad, no the, year before he, the year before when he was healthy, bro was considered a top-five pick. This ain't got nothing to do with last year. What did he do this year? Nothing. You know what I'm saying? Injuries hampered him all year, so it affected his performance. But clearly, they saw he, he got a uniform and a helmet on like all the other 21 dudes on the field with him. Apparently, no his, performance was good enough, his performance was good enough to make him an All-American. Again. That was media, media bias because LSU was undefeated. But go ahead. I don't, bro, I don't want to hear that. Go we ahead. Both know, we both know quality is better than quantity. Now when quantity is washing the quality, you use names specifically NFL quality. What you mean? More you said you had two more when, draft when, picks. When has LSU ever had three top ten picks in the NFL draft? I don't wait. care about I don't care about that. Your draft position, bro. What are you doing? Are you making an immediate impact? They made enough of an impact in college to be a top ten pick. Why are they making an impact in the league? Why are they making an impact in college? This is about DBU, right? This this point, this discussion is pointless. DBU, right? Not DBNFL. Because I'm not coming up from my position and you're not coming up yours. This is really pointless. But we both know who produces higher quality prospects. And we know who produces the most every year, year in, year out. Ohio State, case closed. Do you want higher quality or do you want the most? All right, look, you got school A and school B, right? School A has 20 players with five interceptions. That's 100, right? School B has five players with 20 interceptions apiece. Are you taking school A or school B? I'll repeat that. You kind of confused me with that. All right, school A and school B, right? 100 Mm -hmm. interceptions split between them. School A, you have 20 players that have five interceptions apiece. School B, you got five players that have 20 interceptions apiece. Which school are you taking? 
I'm I'm listening, but I'm still like you said. School A has five has twenty players and five interceptions apiece. No, Is school that what A, school yeah, twenty players with five interceptions apiece. Okay, that's a hundred interceptions. School B is still a hundred interceptions, but it's only five players, but they got twenty interceptions apiece. Qual- quality of a quantity, baby. Stop it. Man, let's move got, on to something. If you got 20 players producing over five, bro, stop. Let's move let's on move because on, this is point. I'm not calling out my position ever, and you're never going to come off yours, regardless of what I say or regardless of what you say. We're not changing our opinion. So let's move on. So next we have our running back you. Who is your RBU, Quinn? You know – I heard you, you know, pick your choice, which I'm not going to give you yet. I don't want to ruin it. Uh, but, you know, after I did some digging, you know, I think there's a school like a lot of people would sleep on. But my pick was Wisconsin. Like, these dudes, like, year in, year out, like, of course they don't play in the SEC, so they don't get as much attention because the media just loves the SEC. But, you know, yeah, anyway. Uh, you know, you had Monty Ball, who was a two-time first-team All-American and a Doak Walker Award winner. Like, I don't know if you remember Monty Ball, but, like, dude was a monster in college. Uh, believe me, I, I do. I do. <laughs> he finished his career with 83 touchdowns, which is an NCAA record. Like, that's crazy to think about. Like, 83 touchdowns, that's video game-like number. So then, you know. Moving on up, Melvin Gordon, once again, monster at Wisconsin. Like, of course, you know, he had a few injuries. But his red shirt junior season, this dude had 2,600 rushing yards. That's the second most in FBS history. And he became the third player that had 2,000 rushing yards and 30 touchdowns. Like, that's ridiculous. And then this year, once again, Jonathan Taylor, monster. He rushed as a freshman. I think he set a record. He had like 1,900 rushing yards himself. Like none of these dudes were scrubs in college. Like they all put up video game numbers. So just based off that, I think Wisconsin is RBU in my opinion. You know what? You made a valid point. I think Wisconsin, uh, they don't get enough credit. And, you know, they produce – they had have some great running backs in college. I mean, even Jonathan Taylor, you know, he was the first running back, what, to have, like, what was it, 5,000 yards before his senior year? Hey, I believe so, so they do. something like that. So and they I didn't even mention players. James White. I forgot about James White. You forgot about Ron? Yeah, and, you know, so if going back further in history, Ron Dane. Ron Dane was cold. <laughs> but, man, for me, uh, I chose Alabama. Uh, you know, since 2009, they've had 10 running backs drafted. They've had three in the first round. They have some in the second round. Also, they've had some in the third round. Uh, some of the first round picks include Mark Ingram, who won the Heisman Trophy. Trent Richardson, who was a finalist. Has Josh Jacobs, who was a do-it-all back, ended up being the first round pick. And that was in with limited carries, he ended up being the first round pick. Uh, Eddie Lacy, who ate himself out of the league, but he was a great running back. It was a human bowling ball. But he wasn't that big in college, though. He was an average size running back in college. I guess. Oh no, nah, he blew up. Blew up at Green yeah. Bay. 
Uh, Derrick Henry with the Russian, the Russian King, Derrick Henry. We saw, you know, we saw what he did at Bama, especially that, that Heisman Trophy year, over two thousand yards, uh, just burning over everybody, like just like he's doing in the NFL. Uh, T.J. Eldon, who was one of my favorite backs in college, even though I'm not an Alabama fan, he was one of my favorite backs to watch in college. He was highly productive. Uh, Damian Harris was highly productive too yeah. at Alabama, and uh, Kenyon Drake was, uh, you know, in limited snaps, he was extremely productive. I think all those guys were. Very productive. They even had Alvin Kamara riding the bench. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> about him. But I, I, don't, I don't count. I don't count him. I don't count nah, him. Nah, nah. That was just a little joke I tossed in there. Don't pay me no more. <laughs> but all those guys were highly successful at the collegiate level, and they contributed to the team's success. Uh, obviously, you know, Alabama is, you know, has been the blueprint pretty much for dominance over the last 10 years, you know, five championships, if I'm not mistaken speaks for itself. Uh, they're usually in the championship game every other year or something like that. So, you know, struggled – well, they didn't struggle last year. You know, had a hiccup last year. But you know, they produced – you know, had some, another great running back that's coming up on the cusp, Najee Harris. Uh, he, when they started giving the ball more, he started to dominate last year. Yeah, he me, you know, But for me, uh, it's Alabama, man, they produced some high-quality prospects. You know, I mentioned, you know, nine they won in the first three rounds. It don't, you know, it don't get no better than that, honestly. I mean, you can produce for, I mean, like I said, I like quality of a quantity. And, you know, those guys have made, most of those guys have made impacts in your one, with the exception of Damian Harris. Everybody else pretty much made an impact, you know, from the gate. And this speaks to the development, the, the, you know, the coaches at Alabama and how they develop those players. Okay, okay. I can't argue with that. I'm sticking with Wisconsin though. I miss with Wisconsin. Hey, they they are they do produce some solid backs though. They really do. Uh, oh, but real. next, but next man, we have our wide receiver. You, Quinn, who is your wide receiver? You. Yeah, I think this is probably the one with the least debate. I mean, I think we pretty much agree on who this is. But I'm going with Clemson. Uh. You know, starting with Nuke, DeAndre Hopkins, who's a top three receiver in the NFL. Like, he was a monster at Clemson. I think, um, was it his junior year? He set a record at Clemson with, like, 18 touchdowns. And then he went down, like, top ten in the ACC history in touchdowns, too. Like, he was the complete package in college and in the NFL, like, Nuke is like the golden standard for me right now anyway, other than, you know, Julio and Mike Thomas. Uh, you know, then they also had Sammy Watkins, who was definitely marginally better in college than he is in the NFL. Like, I thought Sammy Watkins was the next NFL great. Like, he had the speed. Like, you know, he could run, do kick returns. Like, he was just a mismatch in college. Um, I think – what was it? One of those years they played Ohio State, he had, like, 200 receiving yards on us. Like, it was crazy. Like, he was just unfair. And then, you know, uh, you got Mike Williams. He was a top 10 pick in the draft, you know, with the Chargers now. Um, he hasn't, you know, had that big of an impact in the NFL. But, you know, in college, he was another one of those dudes who was just a mismatch. And I think he had, like, like multiple thousand yard receiving seasons in Clemson. 
and then even going down to the like next tier guys at Clemson, Hunter Renfro, who was there who for seemed like 10 years. You know, he was a reliable target for those guys. And then you also had um Artavis Scott. I don't know if you remember him. Uh, but he was he was dangerous, you know, in the kick return game. Uh and I think he was top ten in Clemson history and like scrimmage yards and touchdowns, like so just like quality and depth, I think Clemson has it over everybody. Oh, for me, uh, I went with Alabama. <laughs> wow. What's so funny? What's so funny, bro? Go ahead. I mean, let, let me just give you a few names. Uh, Julio. Amari Cooper. Yeah. Oh, choking. Cal- Calvin choking. Ridley. Calvin Ridley. He okay. Jerry Judy. He and Henry Ruggs, and Henry Ruggs the third, bro. No, he all those rated. guys, all those guys were were elite in college, bro. Elite. Listen, Amari Cooper has two hundred twenty four career catches, bro. No, two hundred twenty eight. Excuse me. Calvin Ridley has two twenty four. Julio Jones has one seventy nine. Jerry Judy has one fifty nine. Think about the numbers, man. Amari Cooper had one hundred and twenty four catches in the season. You want to know who followed him up? He was the only receiver. <laughs> you want to know who had the second most in Alabama history in a single season? Calvin Ridley. Second. You want to know? Who? Calvin Ridley was second. Guess who was third? Julio. Who? Julio. Guess who that was, was fourth? That was when they threw the ball list. They ain't had no quarterback. Guess who was fourth? Jerry Judy. Jerry Judy is on the list twice. Calvin Ridley is on this list three times, if, man. I just want to say this. If Julio was in that current Alabama offense with a decent quarterback or more than decent quarterback, he would have killed all those records. Oh, that, was, that was back when Bama used to run the ball like 50, 60 times a game. <laughs> Dude, Amari Cooper had two 1,000-yard receiving seasons at Alabama, and he had two seasons with over 10 touchdowns. He finished his career with 3,400 yards and 31 touchdowns. Julio finished his career with 15 touchdowns and 2,600 yards. But that's, those are incredible numbers for teams that run the ball a lot. You know, thinking about Clemson, when you think of Clemson, you don't think pounding the football. You don't think of pounding the rock and playing defense. You think of airing it out, spreading you out. And so that creates more opportunities to catch balls. With the Alabama system, we know uh, what Alabama I don't know about that. Clemson, they balance. They pretty balance. Think about it. Alabama's system isn't like it was. It's like it is now. It's not how it used to be. Think about it in 2015, Derrick Henry ran the ball, what, like 300-something times? And yeah, Al- Calvary, it was up and there. Calvary, and Calvin Ridley still was able to put up monster numbers. Uh, think about Amari Cooper, you know. Like even with even with a team that's built to run the football, those guys still put up, you know, incredible numbers. And, you know, like I said, I like quality over quantity. But that's just me. Uh, you I know, mean, the best. up until these last two years, like Alabama would have like one re- like elite receiver that they just kept feeding the ball to. It wasn't until this year that they were just, you know, spreading the wealth around to everybody. So I think that had a bit of a, a impact on those numbers too. That's true. Because, uh, I mean, like, like, you said, like you said, this first, this year is the first year where the ball is really spread around. But it's usually like every other year they have this guy that's just their one dominant guy. That's their go-to guy. Like I said, it started with Julio, then with the Coop, then Calvin Ridley, and then it was Jerry Judy for a year too. And then this year, everybody else came on too. So, but you know, I think all those guys were, you know, at the top of the top. 
you know, while they were at college, you know, and for their list. I remember watching Sammy Watkins at Clemson, and, bro, that man was a monster. And I remember what, what game you were talking about. They played y'all in the Orange Bowl. I want to say it was 2014. And that was yep. the first time I had. Yep. That was the first time. That was the first time I had really got introduced to Sammy Watkins. And like from that point first on, time I, was a, I did too. <laughs> from that point on, I was a huge Sammy Watkins fan. Uh, he dominated in the collegiate level. I, I don't remember watching DeAndre Hopkins in Clemson. I don't think I was. I wasn't really watching Clemson football at that point. Uh, but you know, I've got to. So I can't really speak for you know what he did besides looking at numbers. Uh, I watched Mike Williams. You know, at Clemson, and you know he dominated. Him and Deshaun Watson together, but I got a chance to watch all five of the guys I mentioned, I named for Alabama uh, extensively, and I, I just think they're just the top of the. They had top. They were the top of the top in terms of what college had to offer. Yeah, no doubt. And I mean, I forgot to even mention, you know, T. Higgins this year. Uh, they got Justin Ross, Amari Rogers, like all those dudes. I mean, if it wasn't for Amari Rodgers, I think he tore his ACL. Like, he probably would have been the high draft pick this year. But, you know, he'll be back next year. And I didn't mention Jalen Waddle, And I also didn't mention Devontae Smith, who are guys that's probably both going to be first-round picks next year. So, you know, those two schools are constantly producing elite talent at the wide receiver position. Yeah, no doubt. I'm going – I'm riding with Clemson, though. I'm around. I mean, I can't argue with it, but I'm at the ride with Bama. You know, all road tied. Oh my goodness! Stop it. <laughs> you don't need to sound right saying this. But moving on, man. You know, when Tom Brady signed with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, you know they immediately released Jameis Winston. And uh, Jameis Winston just last week signed with the New Orleans with the division rival New Orleans Saints. Uh, Quinn, what do you think about the acquisition? First off, I don't know how a dude goes from throwing. 30 touchdowns, which I'll be at 30 interceptions. But he did you see he only signed for, like, $1.1 million? Like, who is his agent? That's what I really want to know. Uh, but, you know, Jameis Winston, his first five years in the NFL, like, I mean, I guess I was kind of a fan of him at Florida State. You know, he had the whole, like, crab leg incident. Like, he was just always in headline. Uh, but, you know, since he's been in the NFL, He's been, like, the biggest boom or bust player I've ever witnessed. Like, literally his first NFL play, I remember distinctly watching it because it was him and Mariota because, you know, they were top two draft picks. But literally his first NFL play was a pick six. Like, from the jump, it was just, I guess, meant to be that way. Uh, But, like, even in history, Jameis Winston, he's thrown the most interception in – most interceptions in the first five years of a quarterback's career. But also on the flip side, he's top 10 in touchdowns. Like, that just shows you right there, like, just how big of a boomer bust player he is. But, you know, I think his biggest problem really, like, he's one of the most inaccurate quarterbacks. Like, even with the clean pocket, like, I don't know if it had to do with his vision, like, which he got that corrected this offseason. Uh, then you had him playing in Bruce Arians, you know, system of pushing the ball downfield and, like, deep balls. Like, I don't know, but, you know, his inaccuracy just really didn't help with that. Um, but I think that him signing with the Saints was, like, a big sign of, you know, maybe Jameis is trying to, you know, mature a little bit. 
because uh, you know he used to have the pregame speeches, you know, eating the W's, all this other kind of stuff. Uh, but you know, I always just truly question like how mature of a player he was and how good of a leader he was. But I think that Sean Payton would be a better coach for him than Bruce Arians, because uh, like I said, with the deep balls in 2019 last year. Jameis Winston was fourth in the NFL in deep throw attempts. And I just don't think that type of playing style suits him well with his skill set. Uh, but, you know, looking at him going to play behind a guy like Drew Brees, Drew Brees wasn't the best in his first five years. Like, a lot of people don't remember, but he actually started with the Chargers. And I went and looked, and he threw 80 touchdowns to 53 interceptions, which isn't even a two-to-one ratio. But then when he went to the Saints, it immediately shot up. And over his career, he's had like a 2.5 touchdown, like one interception ratio. Uh, So I think him having that veteran presence uh, to, you know, having that locker room and truly learn from one of the best quarterback coaches and, of course, one of the best quarterbacks to ever do it, I don't think he could have went to a better situation than, you know, Hopefully he'll be starting again for a team in the NFL, but time will tell. I think he got the deal he got uh, was because of, I guess he was they were looking at him as a backup quarterback, which is a great deal for a backup quarterback. But I mean, even kinda, Andy Dalton got seven million. That's Dallas, though. You know they do things different now and there. <laughs> but you know, Jameis last year led the league in passing yards, had thirty-two touchdowns. 30 interceptions was the first guy to do have a 30-30 season. Uh, he had a quarterback rating of 53.7. The league average is, is 50. Uh, but, you know, I think that's it's some signs for optimism because even with his QBR was ranked 16th, which, would be, which, is, which is considered middle of the pack. And, but it was also – it was tied with Tom Brady. And so he threw 30 interceptions, and Tom Brady only threw, what, uh, 80 or 9, I believe, and still had the same quarterback rating. So if you cut that number in half, his QBR significantly improves. But I think part of that was maybe because of the vision issue, I'm assuming. You know, I'm hoping this because of the vision issue. Uh, I've heard Chris Godwin talk about it. He's like, a lot of those interceptions really weren't his fault. He said he believes like half of those interceptions weren't even James's fault. So, you know, you know, we would never really know about that because we don't have the playbooks. We don't know what plays they're running. I think it's it's hope. I have some hope for James. Uh, I remember watching him in Florida State in the Heisman season. He was – tremendous but with the next season you know he was still great but he threw a lot of interceptions and coming into the league that was one of those knocks on him he threw a lot of interceptions which he has continued to do at an alarming rate and also he fumbles the ball a lot too uh that's concerning too if they could cut the if you know if the Saints could cut his turnovers in half you know they'll have a monster at quarterback but it's just a matter of can he you know can he adapt to the system you know can he process process information quicker and learn to take more care to buy. Uh, so I, I think, you know, it's, it's hope, hope for some optimism. I think he can still be a good pro, even though he's five years in. I mean, he does have 121 passing touchdowns, too, in that amount of time. So we know he can sling the rock. Uh, you know, he has a big arm, uh, which, you know, New Orleans system not, is not really predicated on having a big arm, but maybe they can help him cut down on his turnovers, uh, throwing the ball, not throwing the ball downfield as much. Yeah, I definitely think the Saints offense would be more quarterback friendly for him. But I mean, for him, honestly, I think the biggest thing that he's going to get out of being in New Orleans is just, you know, 
learning the real nuances of, you know, being a quarterback and just really cutting down on those turnovers and not putting your team in a bad position because, I mean, like you said, other than that, the talent is there clearly. He has a good arm. Uh, like I said, you know, hopefully, you know, he had his eye vision corrected. Maybe he'll go from 30-30 to 20-20. little corny joke. Uh, but I think even if he doesn't play a lot in New Orleans this year, I think more importantly will be what he takes from Sean Payton and Drew Brees. And hopefully, you know, that can catapult him to, you know, taking that to another team and being the starter once again someday. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty – I'm definitely – I'm sure he'll learn a lot from Drew Brees and Sean Payton and, you know, learn a lot about this system. And I, I think ultimately he'll be a much better quarterback, you know, next time we see him as a starter. But, you know, moving on to our last topic of the show, you know, last week Andy Dalton was released by the Cincinnati Bengals, but he was quickly signed by the Dallas Cowboys for a one-year, $7 million deal with $3 million guaranteed. Quinn, what do you think about this move, and what does this mean for Dak Prescott? Man, so you know I immediately texted you when I saw this notification. Once again, I love, you know, when the Cowboys just, you know, shoot themselves in the foot. But, I mean, to me, honestly, now that I've, you know, had some time to look over it, I don't think it means much, you know, especially for Dak. I, I still think Dak's going to get his money. Uh, but, you know, looking at the Cowboys' history, you know, they've always had a backup quarterback with starting experience, you know, because even when they had Romo, uh, they had guys like Kyle Orton who started a number of games in the NFL. And even going back to Troy Aikman, like, he had Randall Cunningham as his backup at one point. Uh, so. I don't think it'll be a real threat to Dak. Now, we could have maybe raised some eyebrows if they signed Cam Newton. Like, that would have been, like, news for real. But, you know, I don't think it really means much. But by them wanting to solidify that backup quarterback position, I think it really shows that Dallas is all in on a possible Super Bowl run this year. And I think if everything falls in place, you know, that could definitely be there, possibly, you know, at the end of the season. but. Uh, I think it's just going to be all about, you know, how uh, long it takes to get Dax on, you know, how that contract situation goes. Uh, but I think having that veteran presence for him would be huge because he hasn't really had that since Romo, you know, left and went to the broadcast booth. Uh, so I think it was a good move in my opinion because looking at it now, they have two starter level quarterbacks, which before they had like Cooper Rush, like, I don't even know who he is, but I think it definitely puts them in a much better position to possibly make a Super Bowl run. I don't. I didn't really think much about it. I knew they were bringing him in to be a backup quarterback, but I think my concern was the amount of money they paid him. You don't normally pay a backup quarterback uh, seven million dollars. I know it's only three guaranteed, but you you don't see most teams do that, and I think it's alarming because you know Dak Prescott remains unsigned. They offered him the franchise tender, which went from $28 million to $31 million, but he still hasn't signed it yet. So, you know, that's a little concerning. But, you know, ultimately, like you said, they brought him up to be a veteran backup just in case uh, Dak gets hurt or he decides to sit out. Uh, hopefully he doesn't. But I, I really just thought of it as, as just as a backup move, as some security. Eddie uh, Dawson is a three-time pro bowler. He's 70-61-2 as a starter. So, you know, he can win some games. Uh, that's kind of what you want your backup to do. You want him to be able to, to, to keep the ship level 
in case your quarterback misses some star quarterback misses some time. I think if Dak does miss time, he'll be able to level the ship. You know, we don't want him to have to go four and oh, five and oh, you know, two and two is fine for me in terms of backup quarterback. But I think it's not a threat to Dak at all. We know what Andy Dawson is at this point in his career. Uh, his arm talent is, is limited. Uh, but, you know, he can win some games, which he has shown. So, you know, I, I didn't really think much about it. At first, I was like, Jerry, what are you doing? But, you know, like you said, having time to digest and just look at the situation, I think it's just for security reasons. Yeah, no, I'm right with you. I mean, because even when Andy Dalton was in Cincinnati, you know, he was always a quarterback who succeeded when, you know, all the dominoes around him, like, fell perfectly into place. I mean, ultimately, just like a glorified game manager, kind of like a Alex Smith, but, you know, to a little bit of a lesser degree. Uh, I think Andy Dalton has that type of ability. So, like you said, as long as, you know, he keeps the mistakes down, y'all have the talent on offense to where all he has to do is, you know, hand off to Zeke, spread the ball around. Y'all got C.D. Lamb and Amari Cooper now. So, as long as he just doesn't go in and just completely blow it, like, I think he'll be a pretty serviceable quarterback for y'all. I think he will, too. Uh, we Like I said, Cooper Rush was pretty much a nobody. I mean, I watched him play in the preseason, but he didn't he didn't jump off the page for me. Uh, Andy Dalton doesn't jump off the page either, but I'd much rather have Andy Dalton as a backup than Cooper Rush. And they let go of Cooper Rush just the other day, too, so they let you know how much they thought about him. But that's all we have for y'all today. I want to thank y'all for supporting us, continuing to support us as we, you know, go through this podcast and journey. Uh, we appreciate y'all for rocking with us and tuning in to episode nine. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, you know, Facebook, you know, y'all have our social medias, you know, Snapchat, Instagram. Let us know if y'all have any topic suggestions. If you want to ask us a question, uh, we will be having some merchandise coming out soon. So be on the lookout for that. And uh, we are your hosts. I'm Jimmy Covington. And I'm the one and only Quentin Douglas. <laughs> Thank y'all. We out. We out.